Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at Hebrews chapters 1 through 6 in our Come Follow Me curriculum. The way it starts out in the manual, the first sentence, each of us has to give up something in order to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bad habits, incorrect beliefs, unwholesome associations, or something else. And I just made a note. It actually has a line that says, record your impressions, which I've never done, but I did this time <laughs> on page 177. To come to Christ means you have to leave something behind. And again, each of us has to give up something in order to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. When in our stake, we were getting a new stake president and elder Patrick Kieron came to speak and he's awesome. He's delightful. He has that British accent. He's the one that tells the story about the um, going out in his uh, flip-flops and getting bit by a scorpion. Uh, they made a, a little movie about that. But anyway, he talked about, I think it was a monkey trap, where they make them out of coconuts. Or, I mean, there's all sorts of versions of this. In fact, I think I remember one in Where the Red Fern Grows, the book to catch raccoons. But the idea is that you you make a small hole and something inside of this a box or a hollowed out tree or something that the animal wants to grab. So whether it's a, a banana, a piece of fruit, some sort of bait, they reach their hand in, grab it, and make a fist, you know, to pull it out. They're holding it, which makes a fist, and then the hole becomes too small to pull out their arm or their fist. And the only way to be able to get your hand out again, or the animal's hand or paw, is to let go. And these animals refuse to let go. And this is how they, they get trapped. They want to get away, but they don't want to let go of something. So I like this analogy of there's some things you've got to let go of in order to come to Christ. You have to leave something behind. Uh, continuing in the manual, for Gentiles in the early Christian church, conversion often meant abandoning false gods. For the Hebrews or the Jews, conversion proved to be, if not more difficult, a little more complicated. After all, their cherished beliefs and traditions were rooted in the worship of the true God and the teachings of his prophets, extending back thousands of years. Yet the apostles taught the law of Moses has been fulfilled in Christ and that a higher law is now the standard for believers. Would accepting Christianity mean the Hebrews must give up their earlier beliefs in history? So that's kind of the backdrop of the letter to the Hebrews. And what I like is if you kind of look at the first six chapters, it's telling us, this is the view from 30,000 feet type of thing, as Elder Uchtdorf might say, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest that officiated in the temple and went in once a year. Jesus is greater than the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood. And in chapters 8 through 10, we have Jesus' sacrifice, the greatest of all the sacrifices that were, that were brought to the temple. Well, here was God bringing a sacrifice, and that is Jesus, the Lamb of God. So chapter 1 starts out with, it sounds more like kind of a article of faith or a paragraph of a gospel summary than a letter. A lot of the others start out where Paul's saying, hi, hey, I'm Paul, and 
and I'm, I'm writing to you. I'm a fellow laborer, but this one doesn't start out like a letter at all. It starts out like this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, and here we start that idea of Christ is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the high priest. We get to chapter 2 of Hebrews and we see, verse 9, Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, meaning he descended below all things, came to earth, lived in a mortal body, was treated horribly, and in verse 2 became the captain of their salvation. Let me read all of verse 10 is what I meant. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It always reminds me of a famous poem that has often been quoted in, you know, motivational literature called Invictus, I am the captain of my soul. And I can't remember who it was. Let me look it up real quick. Orson Whitney, maybe, who did a response to that Invictus poem. So it looks like it was Orson F. Whitney who replied to that Invictus poem that, that was written by William Ernest Henley. Part of that poem says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, something when I saw Hebrews 2 verse 10 reminded me of that Invictus poem where it calls Jesus the captain of our salvation. When Orson F. Whitney wrote his response to the Invictus poem, which kind of, you know, talks about self-reliance and, and I get to choose, which, you know, has an element of, of truth in it and has inspired a lot of people. But listen to what Elder Orson F. Whitney said. He began, Art thou in truth? Then what of him who bought thee with his blood, who plunged into devouring seas and snatched thee from the flood? Who bore for all our fallen race, what none but him could bear, the God who died that man might live, and endless glory share. His last line, you can go find this if you want, bend to the dust that head unbowed, part of the Invictus poem, small part of life's great whole, and see in him and him alone the captain of thy soul. So, very interesting little idea of the captain of our salvation is Christ, and as much as we can say, I, I can be strong, I can be determine my own fate, I'm the captain of my soul. Orson F. Whitney would say, eh, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> the captain of our soul is the one who bought us with his blood. So when I saw captain of our salvation, I thought that's a fun little, little side road to take and look at that. In the First Presidency Christmas Devotional, in the First Presidency Christmas Devotional on December 3rd of 2000, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, speaking of this Invictus, he said, It is a great poem. It places upon the individual the responsibility for what he does with his life. Through these many years, when I have been faced with difficult choices, I have repeated these stirring words. But on the other hand, it may sound arrogant and conceited in terms of the atonement. Orson F. Whitney of the Quorum of the Twelve of many years ago so regarded it and wrote a marvelous response using the same poetic meter 
and entitling his verse, The Soul's Captain. So it is. When all is said and done, when all the legions of the ages have passed in review, when man's terrible inhumanity to man has been chronicled, when God's great love for his children has been measured, then above all stands the lone figure of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, the Savior of mankind, the living Son of the living God, the Prince of Peace, the Holy One. So, President Gordon B. Hinckley kind of contrasted those two ideas too about Invictus, I am the captain of my soul, then Orson F. Whitney, the soul's captain. And what the writer of Hebrews says, the captain of their salvation. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. One of the things I love about this one is it just reminds me of a hymn in verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Verse 13, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Verse 15, while it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, it's going back to that time of, of Moses when the children of Israel would not go, uh, refused to go into God's presence and God was provoked. And we hear that, that language throughout the scriptures. But when I saw this, while it is called today, I thought, wait a minute, isn't, haven't we heard that somewhere before? So if you go to section 64 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says in verse 23, Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man, and verily it is a day of sacrifice and a day for the tithing of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. For after today cometh the burning. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. Interesting that people have jokingly called tithing fire insurance because of this line that those those that are tithed will not be burned at his coming. But I still knew I had heard those lines about today and provocation somewhere else. So let me go to Alma chapter 12 in the Book of Mormon. And again, we see this idea of today spoken of. Alma 12, 37. Now, my brethren, seeing ye know these things, and they are true, let us repent and not un- harden not our hearts, that we provoke not the Lord or God to pull down his wrath upon us in these second commandments which he has given us. But let us enter into the rest of God. He sounds like he's talking about the provocation as well. But the one that really reminded me of this idea of today and repent now and don't provoke the Lord was Alma 34, 31. Yea, I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer, for behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. And therefore, if you will repent and harden not your hearts, I love this word, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought unto you. Now notice this idea of the day. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God, Alma 34, 32. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. Kind of life is here compared to a day. And the same thing in, in Hebrews 3. While it is called today, hear his voice. I like the idea of the hymn, Today While the Sun Shines. It's the only day that we have within our control is today. If we spend our time worrying about the past, 
That's a waste of mental energy. If we spend our time regretting the past, I mean, let's repent and get on with today. Let me put that differently. We worry about the future. We spend regret in the past. But is there something we can do today? Today is the only day we can do anything that we have control over. On the Follow Him podcast, I joked about golf. The famous saying in golf is, the only shot that matters in golf is the next shot. And it's the same principle. That's something I can do something about. I can't think about the bogey behind the sand trap that I already got stuck in. I can't think about that challenging hole coming up. But what I can think about, what I can do something about, is the next shot, the next hole. So that reminds me of that inspiring idea of today and of the hymn. Now, in my memory, this hymn has changed. The first verse today, while the sun shines, work with a will. Today, all your duties with patience fulfill. Today, while the birds sing, harbor no care, call life a good gift, call the world fair. And then the chorus is, today, today, work with a will. Today, today, your duties fulfill. Today, today, work while you may. Prepare for tomorrow by working today. Now, my memory is, in the older Blue Hymn book, it was, there is no tomorrow. There's only today. <laughs> Which, of course, there is a tomorrow. But the idea of what you can do anything about, that's absolutely true. Prepare. There is no tomorrow. There's only today. It's the only day you can do anything about is right now. So, that hymn reminds me of all those todays. All right, we got to move on. Hebrews chapter 4. Speaking of Jesus being greater than the high priest, well, on the Day of Atonement, they sent the high priest into the temple, who there made a sacrifice. And But now, Paul is saying in verse 15, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I mean, here's this high priest that goes in for the whole house of Israel. Does he know about your problems and your innermost desires and problems and trials? No, but the great high priest, Christ, does. Let me read it again. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There's a double negative there. We have not which cannot. Let me change it. We have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that awesome? So those are the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to go past Hebrews chapter 5, which is basically Jesus was greater than Melchizedek. And I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, the footnote says Greek, having left behind the beginning of the doctrine, the JST says not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. I mean, it's, we're leaving it in the conversation. We're going on to something else. But I am a huge fan, the more I read the Book of Mormon, of how often it brings up first principles. And another name for first principles of the gospel, another synonym, could be the doctrine of Christ could be article of faith number four. Let's keep reading. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance 
and from dead works and faith toward God, in, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So there's your first principles. Faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, endure to the end. That is the doctrine of Christ that Nephi speaks of, and that is their first principles of the gospel in Article of Faith, number four. So I love what it says in verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Fled for refuge, and maybe I just have the hymns on my mind too much. You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled, in how firm a foundation. Well, I, that line has got to come from there, right? Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. So this idea of hope being an anchor to the soul is also referenced that idea in Ether chapter 12. Now we all know that Ether is the story of the Jaredites, but Moroni jumps in and kind of adds some insight in the middle of this abridgment. And this is what he's talking about, Ether, this prophet, and then in verse 4 of Ether 12, he says, Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. And if you see the footnote in Hebrews 12.4, it says, Hebrews 7.22. But I'm looking at Hebrews 6.19, where it actually speaks of an anchor. And also, you will see in Hebrews 6.19, the footnote to Ether 12.4. So, I love the idea of our journey, a ship, as James might call it, a very large vessel being turned about by a very small helm. Uh, also, in the end of section 123, our, our journey is compared to a vessel, but maybe sometimes we need an anchor. And hope that comes from faith is that anchor, which can help us be sure and steadfast. Those are the first six chapters of Hebrews, and next time we'll look at the rest. I hope this has been helpful for you, and remember Jesus is the captain of our salvation. 